do you even start the process of seeking diagnosis and treatment? It can be so overwhelming. Many of our Canadian listeners have been asking us this question. It is difficult to find physicians in Canada who specialize in treating Lyme disease, so we continue to learn from our southern neighbors. In particular, those physicians who live on the eastern seaboard who've been working with people with Lyme disease for decades now. On this podcast, we're going to meet a doctor who has developed his own protocol for treating Lyme disease. Dr. Joseph Jemsek, also known as Dr. J, is an infectious disease specialist. He understands the importance of listening to severely ill and marginalized patients as he's worked through two epidemics, HIV and Lyme disease. We reached him at the Gemsec Specialty Clinic in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Gemsec. My pleasure. Let's go back to your earlier years in your medical career. How did you get involved in working with patients with HIV in the 1980s? So, um, <laughs> you know, when you come out of a residency or fellowship, you always think you're the smartest thing in the block, and uh, <laughs> so did I. <laughs> And um, that's a common feature for a lot of new graduates, unfortunately. But then you realize at some point, if you're good or want to be good, uh, that you're just starting your learning process. And I was intrigued by um, reports of a small cluster of gay people uh, having um, uh, an outbreak, in this case, with captive sarcoma and, and pneumocystis pneumonia. First in New York and then in San Francisco or vice versa, I don't remember. And I just remember thinking, I think this is going to amount to something because I've always had pretty good intuition. I diagnosed the first case in North Carolina in early 83. Of course, it didn't have a name. It was called GRID. And um, I, I happened to be the hospital epidemiologist at the largest hospital in the region. And that was a new position. I was also on the P&T committee, antibody committee. So I was very involved with the hospital and hospital policy. And uh, pretty soon I became known that I was seeing patients with with this syndrome and the disease was finally recognized. It was virus was picked up in 84, was able to be tested for in 85, 86. Uh, I went to early seminars throughout Florida held by some professors. We were sort of a ragtag group. Um, but it was fascinating to, as we sort of scratched the surface of, you know, what the hell is this thing and what's it doing? And, it, you know, it's killing people. And why is it killing people? Um, we didn't have our first drug until 89 with AZT. And I did a, tar- a trial with that. And that was the first of many clinical trials that I did. And I was very proud of the fact that I was uh, able to be involved in a relatively small market, which was Charlotte, North Carolina. And we would out um, distance uh, New York and uh, Miami um, and pretty much everybody on the, on the East Coast. Um, it brought our patients access to brand new drugs. It, uh, it put them in a um, uh, clinical situation which had some uh, structure and um, it helped everyone learn. So I was very happy to do that. I developed a really good staff and I did that for many years. Wow, what an epidemic to work through. I really hear how you had to work hard to overcome your own discrimination with intrigue, curiosity, and intuition. I feel that must lend really well to your transition to working with patients with Lyme disease. It sounds like a similar experience in so many ways. 
I think that's a, you know, obviously a good observation. And uh, I, I don't think I would have been involved in Lyme borreliosis had I not had the HIV experience. Um, but it was a different, it's a different animal. And I am writing a editorial on the differences between the twin epidemics. Of course, now we have coronavirus, so I can't really say right. that anymore. But mm-hmm. but until COVID came, it was the twin epidemics of our time. One being in your face, um, brutal, uh, devastating, ugly, and the other being more of a silent illness, but just as devastating, if not more so, and certainly with larger numbers. Um, so I, I guess somewhere along the way, I I don't know. I um, just felt that um, if I was going to be a doctor, I need to be a patient advocate. I need to listen to patients, which I learned to do with HIV AIDS. Because <clears throat> if you didn't listen to the patient, you made a mistake, they died. And so I just got in a routine of you know listening, making notes, not discounting anything, really. Uh, learning how to distinguish hypochondriasis from, you know, just genuine complaints and trying to keep patients on target when they report it and trying to do an exam on every visit um, because you find things. And today in medicine, we have a situation where a lot of it's uh, programmed and uh, the visits are very short. And if you have complex issues, you have no chance. Um, and in fact, a lot of doctors say, okay, you have time for one complaint. And, um, as we all know, with Lyme borreliosis, there are literally dozens and dozens and dozens of complex and evolving issues. Mm-hmm. So I guess, I mean, I came a fierce advocate for the HIV population, which after a while wasn't just gays. It was women and so forth, straight guys and so forth. Um, I just became an advocate. I just hated the prejudice. And I, you know, it was um, just steadfastly behind them and you know, proud of the fact that I could help them. Some of the, the patient population, um, one of the common commonalities was that the HIV population, even after the after gay pride came about, there's still obviously a tremendous amount of prejudice. And that, that's you know, gone on, you know, for years and years. But with the Lyme population, there's like amounts of prejudice, which is incredible and it's hampered by the fact that we have doctors or other healthcare professionals who just refuse to listen or forgotten how to listen. It's such a fundamental thing. What is medicine without a patient? What 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 is medicine without a patient? Your importance uh, dwindles to nothing. You are nothing unless you have a patient. You can read all the books you want, but unless you have a patient. And and if you don't have the time or don't have the expertise to do a decent examination, because they don't take that long if you know how to do it, if you're thorough, um, then you're also wasting your time and you're worthless. So um, I think one of the reasons that we've been successful is that we uh, do allow enough time for our patients. Obviously, you've had to extract myself from insurance because they'll confine you and sue you, and they've done that with me. And I think that's the fundamental difference. And it's, you know, medicines between the patient and the physician. No, that's so interesting. I mean, you raised so many good points. And, and you know, your your um, model for medicine is so different in the States from in Canada. And I can only speak to my own experience, which was, you know, waiting to see so many different specialists to deal with the different things that were happening in my body. 
And the reality is, by the time I saw an infectious disease doctor, well over a year after I got sick, you know, I was really, really sick when, in my mind, every single one of those specialists should have picked it up earlier. I just want to shift a little bit now, and let's talk about the protocol that you developed. Can you give us an overview of the GEMSEC protocol? So it's an appreciation that we're dealing with a complex inflammatory illness. That is, when I say inflammatory, it's 24-7. So this is... um, you know, acute inflammation is a good thing. It's it's part of uh, uh, keeping us healthy. But chronic inflammation uh, is uh, uh, a very negative influence as it uh, uh, the body deteriorates, uh, cells are lost, uh, we get into a catabolic state sometimes, and all sorts of nutrients fall off and become outliers because of chronic inflammation. So there are many, many... Um, important metabolic features, cellular features that deteriorate and cease to function well when there's chronic inflammation on top of that. And, and it also drains your battery. So if you you have a, a potential electronic electric grid across the mitochondrial membrane, if it's not uh, primed to fire, in other words, if there's not enough potential there, you can't fire the electron transport system. You can't make ATP. Now, in addition to that, you have all kinds of other reasons to be fatigued. You know, you could, and certainly the hormonal aspect of it is very important. Uh, sleep and dealing with the stressors of pain, uh, emotional discord, um, separation um, are all extremely important. And these are, so we have a, a little acronym we call POEMS. So it's POEMS is P, O is other, which is mainly support, but also other conditions. E is, um, Endocrine, mainly the adrenal system, but also many other sex hormones and so forth, testosterone being important. M is mood and uh, S is sleep. And so I, you know, I created that many, many years ago. And we have a several step process in which we uh, feel it's important to stabilize our patient. And so we've become, I think, fairly adept at that. And that means um, most of our patients will have some sort of pain. There are three types of pain. What are those three types of pain? Uh, many have neuropathic pain. Some have nociceptive pain, which is muscle, skeletal, uh, and joint, periarticular. Some have uh, horrible regional pain, which is don't touch me pain, and, or central pain, where everything hurts. You can't put your shirt on or pajamas on without it being painful. We have to stabilize the pain to an acceptable degree. We have to get some delta sleep. We have to have the mood in a place where it's not perfect at all, but just so that it's not going to sabotage our efforts. We have to have support, and we have to know what laboratory outliers there are so we can correct them because otherwise, if you don't do those things and take three to six weeks to do that, um, you're doomed. Your program will will fail. Um, and then we start, whether it's IV or oral, in most of our cases by far are oral, uh, we'll start with a gentle killing off of some spirochetes using um uh, less intense medications, if you will, mm-hmm. just to see if we need to modify the approach and support that we put in place, whether it's neurotropics, psychotropics, uh, a whole range of supplements, uh, alternative therapies that are helpful. Um, and, you know, we employ as many um, health professionals as we think are necessary to get the ball rolling. Sometimes we have to take a gallbladder out before we get started. Um and all kinds of nuances. But we'll start gently, and then we'll make adjustments as we go. And I look at it a lot like chemo. We do, um, we do progressive sequencing, 
We take combinations and we pulse. And why do we pulse? We pulse because all our targets are slow growing. Mm-hmm. And we're using combination therapy so as to preclude resistance, just like I learned with HIV AIDS. The difference between HIV AIDS and this is that our target pathogens are replicating very slowly, whereas the virus will replicate every 30 minutes. So it's a different paradigm. So we take advantage of the fact also that the spirochete is, and then the whole family, spirochetia, is unique in having a lipoprotein surface antigen, which is distinct in the um, uh, the prokaryotic population. And uh, so, so, um, so E. coli has a uh, you know gram-negative polysaccharide uh, coating, gram-positive bacteria. Many have tocoic acid and so forth. But a lipopolysaccharide, for whatever reason, is uh, 20 to 40 times more um, in activating to the immune system. And that's what a Herxheimer is. Okay. And uh, that, that's what their Jerry's Herxheimer learned, you know, as, as cousins and dermatologists in neighboring countries when they treated syphilis in the late um, 1900s. Right, which is another spirochete bacteria, isn't it? Yeah. So, and And guess what, folks? The spirochete's deeply embedded in your nervous system. Mm-hmm. So it's in the wheelhouse. It's in your fuse box. And um, uh, so it's a, you know, so that's why it's even more important to stabilize our patients. And and we take advantage of the fact that it, it's such a volatile situation that we can go slowly. We can give people downtime. We teach them how to detoxify. And detoxification is through eating the right things, avoiding gluten at all costs, and other food food groups that you know are offensive, at least for the time being, taking a modicum of supplements, um, doing sweats, uh, either passive or active. Most people can't do active sweating, but passive, so salt baths or saunas or stretch and tone, move the lymphatics, do acupuncture, uh, um, and so forth and so on. So all those techniques go into trying to get endorphins up, lymphatics moving, um, and all the while we're trying to, we're controlling pain without the patient feeling drugged or medicated or sluggish or scared. And we tell our folks, listen, there's one word to remember through all of this on each cycle is manageable. Mm-hmm. You're not going to be better for a few months. And if you haven't been down this road, you wouldn't know what to expect, but we'll guide you. And our former patients will guide you and they'll tell you there is going to be a better day. But, you know, we're dealing with a highly inflammatory process very tough to dig out. It's killing a lot of your cells. Some will be replenished, some won't, but you have um, a lot of reserve in the nervous system and so forth. And we simply need to purge these infections because infection, infected tissues don't heal. Uh, our our therapies becomes progressively more complex as time moves on. I would say the number one, two, and three reason, and four and five and six reason that people don't get better is that um, the folks out there trying to treat this illness don't know how to uh, deal with biofilm uh-huh. in a um, synchronous way, in an intelligent way, and they don't know how to t- uh, kill Babesia. Uh, Babesia, to me, and this is um, probably something you've never heard before, but I've been saying it for a while. Babesia, to me, is the driver. I would make the argument that all of us have spirochete, or most of us. I would make the argument that the incidence of congenital spread is vastly underestimated. I would make the inference. The, uh, the I would make the um, inference that um, it's easily sexually transmitted, and I call it the uh, guilt-free STD. Um, and I think one way or another, we get the spirochete, and we probably have a number of strains. 
Most of the other infections that are thought to represent the core infections are things that have colonized the human body for the most part, like mycoplasma, chlamydia, pneumonia, Bartonella. Um, and in the end, it, you can really look at this as an opportunistic infection where the immune system uh, is kept busier and busier as time goes on, particularly once Babesia joins the party. Right. Now, it's not clear Babesia is sexually transmitted or vertically transmitted or so it's certainly not the extent that spirochete is. I'll stop and see what questions you have. <laughs> well, there's so many questions I have for you. Um, you did touch on, though, the lymphatic system and the importance of sleep. And I'm just curious about the glymphatic system and the role it's playing in that restorative state of sleep and how it's helping de- detoxify our brains. Well, our brain, so that's, that's a great question. Our brain needs to rinse. It's a it's an organ like other organs makes uh, metabolize you know metabolizes and makes waste. Um, and so, you know, where does that waste go? Well, our brain only has one. They just found it actually a tiny little lymphatic system at the at the vertex, the top of the head. Not enough to drain the brain. But what happens? Um, is that during deep sleep, and this is why deep sleep is so important. And you know, we, um, I, I don't, I'm not a techno person, but I, I do think you can get a little bit of data from the, the smartwatches and monitor your sleep. We need our deep sleep. If we don't get our deep sleep, um, we have trouble uh, detoxing our brain. The reason is that the vascular channels open up, and there's an interchange between the spinal fluid. And the vascular change, a lot of the toxins are swept away uh, during deep sleep. And there's some good talks on TED Talks uh, about this, and it's it's very, very interesting. It makes a lot of sense. And so I, I know everybody's had a night where they didn't sleep very well, and the next day they feel like they didn't sleep at all, <laughs> and their brain is just fogged, and, you know, it's just not good. Um, and that's how a lot of our folks feel because they don't get deep sleep. Now, we use... Obviously, there's a lot of things get, that go into sleep. You know, is it restless? Are you having apnea? Are you choking or coughing? Are you uh, getting up all night to avoid because you have diabetes insipidus uh, and missing a hormone to reserve to preserve water? And uh, are you um, having frightful dreams waking you up? Are you waking you up with a sympathetic surge? Um, but the brain is so... You have to remember that the limbic brain includes the hypothalamus, and um, that's our sleep center. And that is an easy target for these infections. So the, it's very vascular. The hypothalamic pituitary axis is very vascular. So that's why we get so many hormonal and hypothalamic uh, abnormalities, including the sleep. And But there are a handful of drugs, not named Ambien, which... Um, help promote deep sleep. And we use those. Sometimes we need something to initiate sleep. We try to stay away from the benzos, but we'll use them um, if needed because we got to have our patient go to sleep. So we need to get them to sleep and make sure they get into deep sleep. And we try to control for the, you know, some of the consternating issues, whether it's apnea or restlessness or up and down or, or just plain the brain doesn't get into a deep sleep. And so, so, but the lymphatic drainage occurs during deep sleep. And uh, there's a rinsing phenomenon that goes on that's fascinating. Now, you also mentioned the the limbic system. That keeps coming up in my research as well. That's our reptilian brain. That's the brain that doesn't think. That's why a lot of our patients, uh, everybody's irritable. (laughs) Right. (laughs) That's their ground floor. And then the second floor is a little anxious, maybe a little tiny bit of panic, a little sadness. 
And the third floor is uh, rage and, um, you know, terrors, uh, terrors and, uh, you know, uh, major depression and uh, OCD. And the fourth floor is delusion, depersonalization, out of body, hallucinations, et cetera, et cetera. So, but everybody starts with irritability. There's not a patient I know that's not irritable. And so we just, so the brain's inflamed. Thank you for uh, giving me permission to be irritable. (laughs) Yeah. Um, Yeah. So it's kind of a fine line to walk because when I tell people this, I'm, I'm saying, you know, as soon as you gain a little control, you don't have permission to be irritable. So, um, yeah. Or, but we prefer you not be irritable. We we'd like to calm your brain down without you feeling drugged. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, the limbic system um, is our um, involuntary brain. It's our reptilian brain. I call it the Komodo brain. Okay. Uh, did you ever see a Komodo dragon stop and think, well, maybe I shouldn't bite that person? <laughs> you, you know. Stuff. No, they just react. <laughs> They just react, and um, so that's our reptilian brain. And uh, when the reptilian brain, the amygdala, which is our fight or flight rage, um, center, little devil gland at the bottom of the brain, when it fires up and it's like a little um, glowing coal, it will override the prefrontal cortex. So you know, so it'll fire off rage and fear and anger. And it's such a strong impulse, it shorts out the prefrontal cortex because if it weren't that way, you know, if if we got angry about something, we'd say, wait a minute, you know, let's rethink this. There's no reason to be that angry. Let's just take a step back. But that doesn't happen when the brain's on fire. And the, the, the limbic system is white matter, So and the, and the cortex is gray matter, right? Gray matter, white matter. So everything goes through the limbic system, however. So all our sensory input goes through there. And that leads to a whole uh, range of uh, abnormal um, sensory phenomenon, uh, motor phenomenon, depending on if the parameter pathways are involved, and they are quite often. Um, so every part of the brain is capable of being involved, whether it's occipital lobe, the cerebellum for balance, the basal ganglia for fine motor control, and various types of seizures and Parkinsonian type fixture. Um, the upper uh, limbic system, I think, has a lot to do with OCD and the cingulate gyrus. Um, and then you have on top of it all the hormonal issues. And as I said, you go back to the basic essential life functions. If you're not sleeping, I can't get you better. If your pain's beyond the pale, I can't get you better. If your emotions are beyond the pale and everything's unmanageable, I can't get you better. If you have no support, I can't get you better. So, we have rules and checks and check our boxes just like the patient checks their boxes. Oh, that's great. Can we just talk a little bit more about the biofilm? You were mentioning that a lot of people don't really understand the role that that's playing and how that's keeping people from healing. So the biofilm is a polysaccharide with lots of different channels and pores. It's, it's, form, it's constantly forming and reforming and dissolving. Um, virtually all organisms can make biofilm and, um, when you have chronic inflammatory or chronic pathogen illness, stealth pathogen, um, everybody and fungi are in there, babesies in there and, you know, uh, they're all in a menagerie, right? Mm-hmm. So there are only a few antibiotics can get in and pretty much if the 
the um, pathogens are in a dormant state. So uh, we want them in a planktonic state where they're coming out and free living. They're much easier to kill. Uh, much easier, 100 times more, maybe a 1,000 times more, easier. Now, there's some, in our experience, there's some antifungals and anti-malarial drugs that get into biofilm and disrupt biofilm. Um, I think there are more than we think. There are foods that do it. I'm not going to get into that because I don't want to scare anybody. But um, the point is we want to do it. We want to break down biofilm in a, in a progressive, selective, and smart way and not overwhelm the body. But we have to release these things. Otherwise, you know, we can do several months of work for naught. And so um, we gradually peel away. And so um, <clears throat> I've used xylitol for years because it's easy to measure, predictable. And, and the stevia is the same molecule. Stevia is from stevia plant. Um, xylitol is from uh, corn cobs and uh, the bark of uh, white birch, believe it or not. But they're both sugar alcohols. And they become very effective as detergents for the polysaccharide, which is the biofilm. And they they ease away the biofilm and release the organisms so they can be killed. So in our programs, not right away, because we don't overwhelm the patient. Remember, we're just testing things out. Um, but within, you know, not too long a period of time, we'll start uh, melting the biofilm while we're treating. Then we stop melting the biofilm. And in the case of the sugar alcohols, our patients are not allowed to have any kind of um, sugar uh, alternative or um, sugar substitute at all. Even though um, some of them, like monk's fruit, are probably okay. Sucralose, not so much, I don't think. Stevia is definitely off the list. Erythritol is definitely off the list because it's another sugar alcohol. Mm -hmm. And I just have a general rule. You cannot have an artificial sweetener. You have to do it. So we treat for the first few days, and then we stop, and then we... Uh, typically treat a second week where we do a kill zone, so we kill what comes out. Then we let our patient rest. And um, by then, of course, the patient has learned how to detoxify, and they've learned all the tricks, and we've you know, stabilized their sleep and pain. Perfect, but enough that they can at least make some um, logic gains because the, the goal here in the end is to um, turn all this over to your uh, strength and more focused immune system. Now, if people wanted to go and learn more, do you have any resources that you share with patients? Well, I, I don't. I don't know. I think that uh, there are many, um, many good older articles that talk about the pathophysiology of the organisms and speaks, you know, volumes to that and the persistence. Those seem to be ignored by the whole medical community. There is not a good clinical paper, in my view, um, that talks about this or talks in the way that I'm speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and that's why I'm so disappointed that COVID came along and, and uh, ruined our study with GLA, okay. which was patient funded and which was going to do a pilot study for 30 patients using my treatment, collaborating with three universities, with scientists of special skill at each one, and writing a very professional paper. And we were off to a good start and COVID just took our legs out. So it's very disappointing. And Is there hope that research will continue? In the future? I hope so, yeah. um, but COVID's got to settle down. And COVID mm -hmm. is, the Lyme community, um, COVID is bad news. Um, I think it reactivates uh, or causes clinical expression of a lot of people who are just barely compensating to have berliosis, in my view. 
Um, and so COVID is a huge trigger and it's going to destabilize folks. And, 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 um, you know, the long hauler syndrome is a name I hate, but this is, these are chronic infections either caused by COVID and or Berliosis and or another uh, community of uh, infections that uh, we don't understand. Uh, it's very sad. And then whole families and children that never have a chance at life. And, uh, you know, our incidence of, um, um, abnormal social behavior and socialization issues that's made all, all made worse by COVID, uh, issues of uh, autism with the rates being, you know, through the roof. For what reason? We have way too much MS, way too much ALS, way too much Parkinson's, especially in younger people. Um, you, you know, it's just something's going on. Why can't people wake up and see that uh, the human condition is uh, in another paradigm? with a set of infections that the immune system's not had to deal with in environments that where we can't quantify or identify what new toxins are in the environment and what they do to our bodies. I appreciate you taking the time because um, in Canada, you know, treating Lyme disease is still, we're, we're still in a relatively early stage of that, I would say, and it's hard for people to find physicians that are trained. Do you have any advice for Canadian physicians about training about treating patients with Lyme disease? We can, we can do a little bit. I mean, people are, you know, we're welcome. They're welcome to precept with us for a week. And we, we've done that many times, but you can't learn the disease in a week. Here's what needs to happen, in my view. Please. <laughs> maybe we'll maybe we wrap this up. But what needs to happen, in my view, and I've said this for a long time, is that we need to have, create uh, tick-borne illness, or what do you want to call it, as uh, its own uh, discipline its own specialty, because you've heard me talk about all these areas of medicine where each area has its own specialist, right? Right. As a Lyme specialist, you have to be competent in all of these areas and or, or know where to get help. And what we need to do furthermore is to um, not homogenize the, the process, but have a, a honest educational um, process and programs that teach people and test people and credential people so that they can come out and say, I've attended this academic setting for six weeks or eight weeks and I've passed my test and I'll have, you know, I'll have to do some um, updating later on, but I am credentialed. And it's not like just hanging out your shingle and say, oh yeah, we can treat Lyme disease and we know all about naturopathic medicine and we'll give you some IV glutathione and you'll be fine. And, you know, we'll do this and we'll do doxy for six weeks and, you know, that that just doesn't get it done. But until that happens, and we actually have our, and this may take God knows how long, but this is what needs to happen, quite honestly, because we have millions of people that are ill and struggling and, you know, create, you know self-medicating and um, uh, lost, and um, you can't find a way. I do have something on my website, and by the way, we've done... We're going to do our 11th live stream in a year, uh, Wednesday, or each one hour. And um, uh, we, um, so for people who can't access care, and I understand that, that that is the vast majority of people, we do have a very simple book that was put together by uh, uh, UK in London. When I was over there, I gave a one-man day um, presentation to a couple hundred people. And unfortunately, it never made the video. It never made the video that was any good. But it was a wonderful experience. And uh, um, 
one of the uh, graphic uh, artists over there put together. We gave some ideas, and I got some ideas from a, a British friend of mine and from uh, Andrea Caesar, who wrote uh, T- Twist of Lime, and just on the various aspects of life where you can improve yourself. So if you can get out of bed and have a little bit of help, you can, there are certain things you can do to improve the quality of your life. So it's very, very basic. It's like Primer 101. It can be improved, but it is a starting point that everybody can look at and say, oh, I, you know, you'd be surprised how many people don't think, don't understand that they should move their body a little bit or that they can do so, uh, tub soak so they can, they should stay away from gluten and, um, and so forth and so on. It's just um, something that everybody can look at and hopefully will help um, help them. Oh, that's great. And like you say, just any improvement in somebody's quality of life really makes a big difference. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Jemsek. I really appreciate you taking the time to educate all of us and share your expertise and your multitude of experiences with us. Thank you. You're welcome and uh, good luck with your endeavors. And uh, I'm very impressed that you're doing this. I want you to continue to do it and have good fortune. Wow, what an amazing interview. It was so fascinating to hear about the limbic system and biofilms and how his medical career has spanned two epidemics, HIV and Lyme disease. I think one of the main takeaways for me was the idea of creating a tick-borne specialty for physicians. That's another podcast. As always, stay safe in the outdoors.